0: You have to be totally synchronized. Five, four, three, two. I don't like this idea at all. Well, I don't know, he gave you a brain, too, and you messed that up pretty damn good. If I could get that lazy drunk off his fat ass, I would. You're an Academy Award nominated person. You need to be fucking selling that shit, dude. Shut the fuck up. God damn it. Ladies and gentlemen, you have stumbled upon the John. Fuck you, that's my name. MJ. Don't use that tone to me. Talk Movies Podcast. Welcome back to the John and Jay Talk Movies Podcast. This is Jay, and I'm again all by myself. Yep, John wanted to spend time with his wife. Concept I don't seem to understand, but anyway, I'll let him have it. I wanted to address a couple of things with last week's episode, so we'll go with parliamentary procedure. We'll address our old business. We'll vote on our old business as read, and then we'll move into our new business. I'm going to look at two boutique releases of uh, Vinegar Syndrome and their release of Beyond the Door 3 and Criterion Collection and their release of True Stories. Which, if you remember to last week's episode, I said I was going to review Vinegar Syndrome's release of Hellmaster. But, like one of my critiques pointed out to me, I did several times say I wasn't going to do something that I turned around and did. I had to keep that theme in this week's episode as well. Another critique that I got, which I found very funny, was I started out last week's episode and I said, welcome back. To insinuate that there were other episodes that weren't available. And I reminded this individual who brought this concern to me, and I appreciate it, any concerns, we have many episodes of the John and Jay Talk Movies podcast that are never going to be available to the public. That consists of season one, and season one only lives in the hard drives of the computers of both John and I. They are there for our entertainment purposes only, and it was mainly just a viability thing. Could we do this? And it reminded me of something that I did for last week's episode that John and I strive to not do, again, being that the theme, tried not to do in the previous episodes that will remain unreleased. So John and I were going to talk about the movie Halloween, and we were going to Compare and contrast John Carpenter's original 1978 version to Rob Zombie's. What we did was we just said, okay, we called each other, turned our microphones on, and went to town and talked. We made a lot of factual errors, made a lot of omissions. It was kind of choppy, but it was very conversational. We went through, we went back, and we listened to the raw recording and said, we can do so much better. So for the next two weeks, he and I compiled notes and talked several times on the phone about what we would talk about, how we would transition, how I would make this point, he would make this counterpoint, and we would come to this conclusion. It was very organized, very well drawn out, and then we recorded it. We didn't realize what we were going to be missing when we did that, and that was the magic, and that ties into a lot of last week's episode and a lot of the omissions and factual errors I made in last week's episode. I think the magic of this show is the conversation itself, John and I, where he has his point of view, I have mine, and we talk through each other's viewpoints, see the pluses and minuses of each point, and then come to a conclusion that I think is the best of both worlds. So what was happening was when we were so prefab and so recorded, I was just waiting for dead air to get to the next note that was on my sheet. Same thing for John. He was like, okay, hurry up, say something so I can get my point of view out. We weren't listening to each other. It was basically just recorded lines said one after the other, which didn't make for very good podcasting because what the first episode had was, hey, I remember this one bit. Yeah, I remember that bit as well. And then we kind of talked through it together and we bounced off of each other more and it was more, again, like I said, more conversational as opposed to me reciting lines, him reciting lines. I feel like the format, while flawed, is still the best way to go and it makes for the most entertaining show that I would want to listen to. And since I am my primary audience, that's what I'm going to stick with. I made a couple of factual errors. It's so like the inside front page of the newspaper. I said something about William Peter Blatty and Legion and the Exorcist 3. Well, those are the one in the same film. I wanted to throw an interesting little tidbit. William Peter Peter Blatty, who wrote the book The Exorcist that was made into the 1973 film The Exorcist that was directed by William Friedkin, he wanted to call it Legion. But Warner Brothers, who had bought the rights to it, said no, we want you to call it The Exorcist 3. But his whole point was this was not a continuation of what was done in The Exorcist 2. The Exorcist 2 was a horrible film and it's one of the five films that regardless of how large my collection grows, I refuse to own because of the lack of quality and the slap in the face that it was. What they did, William Peter Blatty's Legion, they made him include an exorcism in it and call it The Exorcist 3 because they wanted name recognition. And you say, well, why are we talking about that, Jay? Well, when we get to the new business part of today's episode, one of the films I'm going to review, even though I lied to you, bold face lied to you last week when I said I was going to review Vinegar Syndrome's release of Hellmaster, I'm actually going to talk about Vinegar Syndrome's release of Beyond the Door 3. You're going to say the same thing I said. I have only seen Beyond the Door. I haven't seen Beyond the Door 2. I'm going to be lost. Well, come to find out, it's a sequel in name only. It has nothing. I don't even think there was a door in the film, and there was certainly nothing beyond it. That was a big problem with direct-to-video releases and small independent films of the 80s where studios were so scared there was not going to be a path to making their money back that they were hunting for name recognition, notable actors, anything that they could do to market and sell the film. So it kind of reduced the quality of the film because there was no need for that exorcism scene in The Exorcist 3. There was no need for us to be talking about The Exorcist 3. We should be talking about Legion, the film, not the Exorcist 3. So I was at Target this morning. Imagine that. So if I'm not at work, I'm not at home and I'm not driving somewhere, I'm at Target. That's just who I am and where I am. I strolled through the back part of the store and they had on the big screen, they were playing a promo for Ford versus Ferrari. And a couple of things struck me about that. I'm gonna say I don't remember this line from the film. You had Matt Damon's character as Carroll Shelby saying that they knew they were making history. And that was one of the points of contention that I had last week was they never really talked about the legacy Did people know what they were doing? Was this like the moon landing? Did these guys know, hey, we're on the cusp of something big here? I did my best to kind of tune it out because of my opinion of Ford versus Ferrari. But I believe, and if I'm right in saying this, it's holy crap, Jesus, all those other words. The interviews were being conducted in character because I was sitting there watching Christian Bale talk with a British accent. I swear I was trying to tune it out and ignore it. But I believe Christian Bale was sitting there beside a a kit car of the GT talking with a British accent. So I believe those quote unquote big screen interviews interviews were in character, which is ridiculously cheesy, and it kind of cheapens the film as a whole. It cheapens the autobiographical aspect of the film. If you really want to get me interested in picking up Ford versus Ferrari, show me some 1960s footage of those two cars going at it, or show me something that's going to pique my interest in it. Almost blasphemous, if you can say that. It's almost blasphemous that you have Christian Bale playing a dead man who died in the film that he's acting as, and then you've got Carroll Shelby being played by Matt Damon, who is also dead. So it's almost like a slap in the face to the people that they were paid to play on screen. I hope that wasn't what I saw because I really wasn't trying to see it. So one thing that happens when we move from one format to the next format is films get left behind. For the most part, it's incidental that films are getting left on a previous format because very rarely are there hidden gems out there that didn't make the jump from one format to the next. We went from VHS, Betamax, to Laserdisc, to DVD, to Blu-ray, to 4K, to digital. We've made several jumps in format along the way. And like I said, for every jump, not every film makes that transition. One of those that was a hidden gem was William Friedkin's Sorcerer. That was a Laserdisc VHS release and it didn't until last year receive a proper Blu-ray release. It's an amazing film. Amazing film. It's that one in a million that got left behind. For the most part, you get films that are cult followings that the cult is very small. Or you get these films that were direct-to-video back in the day that basically were just slot fillers at Blockbuster and Family Video. Both films that I'm going to discuss today are films that failed to make the initial jump from VHS to DVD, but now are available to us on Blu-ray. We've got True Stories that the Criterion Collection released and then we have Beyond the Door 3, released by Vinegar Syndrome. Honestly, even though it was completely unintentional and I'd never seen either film prior, I picked films that had such differing qualities, differing styles. I do not think I could have spent an entire week and found two films that were any more diametric opposed. I'm going to talk about boutique labels real quick. I think it's really neat that there are all these companies out there that are scrounging and finding these films, blowing the dust off of them, remastering them, and releasing them on a more accessible format. I think that's very fascinating, and from a rare horror point of view, there's all these good companies that, I mean, they are literally fighting and scratching for all these films. You've got Severin, Synapse, Arrow, Vinegar Syndrome, and there's a lot of labor and money involved, because you have to to buy the rights to the film. You have to remaster the film. You have to then print the film, market the film, and release the film. So there's a lot of time and labor. A lot of these boutique releases end up being pretty costly. And when I say pretty costly, outside of a sale, you're going to expect to spend between $20 and $30 per. There's one big con to these films, and that is you don't know what you're getting yourself into because these are films that did not make a jump from one format to the next. For the most part, that price tag is very prohibitive of you jumping in. But, I swear to God, this is the secret to making a boutique label successful, these companies have learned all you have to do is number the spines because for those of us that have sizable collections and we are hunting for rare off the wall kind of stuff and I'm not saying I'm one of those people but I'm referencing me as a fellow movie collector. I acknowledge that there is this need in others. These companies have realized all you have to do is put a number on the spine of the case because here's the thing. If I get number 13 and I like it, now I'm going to be looking for 1 through 12 or if I get number 1 and number one was good, and I see number two. I'm going to be a lot more willing to just snatch and grab. Part of what I'm paying that price for is I'm filling a gap that I have created in my collection. I bought number thirteen, but now I need the other ones, so I justify the purchase. I justify the twenty to thirty dollars. Well, I can fill in this gap in my collection. That's when, and I get frustrated with when your collection becomes a showpiece. Oh look, I have all 128 Aero US releases in order. Here's the spines to prove it. Not all 128 releases were good. Were worthy of that price. Were worthy of that purchase, and you. Bay- basically just filled in the gaps to say you did. If we have any entrepreneurs out there, know this. If you're going to do a boutique label of movies, make sure you number the spines. And case in point, and again, John's not here to defend himself, so ha ha ha, you deserve every bit of what's fixing to happen. 20th Century Fox released a collector's edition of 31 films. I only know this because of John, and they're numbered. The films have nothing to do with themselves. They're not even properly numbered. According to John, there are two number 15s, there's no number 16, and it stops at either number 31 or 32. I can't remember what he said. And so he went through and he scrounged and and tried to find them all. And we're talking Alien, AI, The Verdict. A lot of weird science fiction, some weird drama mixed in. It doesn't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to it at all. But because it's numbered, now for that showpiece, by God, he's got to have all of them. So I apologize, John. I give you a lot of shit in real life and now I'm giving you a lot of shit over our podcast. I think it highlights my point. We're all guilty of it. I am sitting here casting stones perched high in my glass house. I kind of jumped in on the vinegar syndrome thing without much thought. I would have been slower with my initial jump into vinegar syndrome, but we talked to the guys at vinegar syndrome, we listened to what they said, we agreed with what they said, and they are themselves lovers of film. I'm sitting here going, you know what, these are guys that share our values, share our beliefs. I want to support them. I want them to keep doing what they're doing. I kind of jumped in headfirst into the vinegar syndrome releases. About 50% of their films are 1970s almost porn films, and then the other half are what I have now discovered to be direct-to-video 1980s 1990s horror films that they take, remaster, and release. I don't think they're in a bidding war for the distribution rights to some of the films that they distribute, but I will give them huge kudos for how they remaster the film and how they market the film, and their slipcovers are silky smooth, extra thick. They really went the extra mile with the release of the film. I don't necessarily agree with all the types of films that they put out. I don't always agree with the quality of films that they put out. I'm saying that after having watched... Now two of their films. I want to support them because they come from the same place where John and I do, wanting to support, wanting to continue these films, have that nostalgia factor kick in, but I don't know that I would venture any further into their catalog of films. I said I've watched two of their movies. They released a box set of the 1990s versions of the Amityville Horror. I watched their Blu-ray release of Amityville Dollhouse. It was very campy, low production value, the acting was kind of hit or miss, but it was still an enjoyable film. That's one thing that modern films failed to do. They're getting way too long. Avengers Endgame was almost 3 hours long. Both films that I reviewed last week were over 2 hours and 15 minutes long. Both films that I'm reviewing today were right at 90 minutes long, and I think that's the sweet spot for a movie. If you need to go into that 2 hour, 2 hour 15 mark, you've got to bring something more to the table, and films don't need to be 76 minutes long, but I think 90, 95 minutes is a sweet spot for a film, and I think directors, producers, editors, these people should challenge themselves. Be aggressive with that time limit. Don't just put things in there. Chop the time off the film, but at the same time, you're paying 10 bucks, 15 bucks to go sit down and watch the film in theaters. You want to get your money's worth, so if you sit down for 95 minutes, maybe you're going to feel cheated, as opposed to the people in the theater next to you that are watching a two-hour film. I don't know. A lot of time could have been trimmed off of Ford versus Ferrari, gotten some more meat and potatoes in the film. I think Knives Out was good. Obviously there were some redundancies in the film. It could have been shortened. I'm okay with it because, again, it was a more modern film, so I'm okay with the time length. I'm going to jump in into Beyond the Door 3. I don't know if I've mentioned it before, I have not seen Beyond the Door 2. I've seen Beyond the Door, but I have not seen Beyond the Door 2. So in the back of my head, putting the DVD in the tray, I was thinking I may be lost. Then I realized one thing that I had forgotten. We're talking about old formats, blockbuster, Hollywood video. Back in that day, what got you to grab a film and take it home and watch it was name recognition. Again, it's like Legion versus The Exorcist 3 We're looking for name recognition. If you saw the original Beyond the Door and you were genuinely scared by it, it was a great film, then you go into Blockbuster or Hollywood Video and you see Beyond the Door 3 sitting there, you're going to grab it without probably too much of a hesitation because your entry price to take it home and watch it, it's going to be next to nothing. You stand to lose nothing and all you can gain from it is an enjoyable experience. In reality, there were no doors. There was nothing Beyond the Doors. It was just Beyond the Door 3 in name only. And it was a very low budget film. Very low budget. Production quality was surprisingly decent but you can tell that corners were being cut from the very opening of the film. They had a yellow Crown Vic. did not say cab, did not say taxi on it whatsoever. If you were very astute, you noticed something. The film started out in an American airport. It drove down an American interstate and you saw the sign that gave you the mileage to a particular area. You were able to make out a couple of California towns on that green sign. Then it cuts. Now you've got that same yellow Crown Vic driving down an obviously European road because the cars that are passing them now have European license plates. Pretty smart on their part to sell you on an experience and unless you're paying close enough attention to realize that, hey, we started out in America, but then transitioned to Europe. And that may have been a reshoot thing, I don't really know. One of my major complaints with Beyond the Door 3 was they had a couple of really cool scene ideas in mind. I feel like they used a lot of their time and resources to make, particularly the death scenes, kind of just let the camera run from that point forward. You got no emotion, you got no motivation, you got nothing from the little bits and pieces. They were trying to keep your attention in between these gory, over-the-top deaths and it was very low budget. One thing that that format or that way of shooting allowed that film to do was something that I highlighted earlier in the episode. Remember when I told you John and I recorded two different episodes of us discussing Halloween? What we realized was there was more magic when we had the conversation, but it was less accurate and it was more fumbling around, but it was us organically coming to a conclusion. Whereas when we perfected it, it was very clean, it was very precise, it was very technical, but there was no back and forth. We were just waiting for the other person to stop talking so that we could interject. So what happens is, is when you don't have everything so cleanly laid out in front of you, you make a film, you find things in the scene, or you can tell the film did not have a location scout. And you can tell they carried the camera around, the actors followed them. This looks like a really cool scene. So why don't you guys run across here? And then it was a very interesting angle or brought something in the foreground into focus while they ran out of focus in the background. It was pretty neat. And I think had they had a location scout, had they had a script more ironed out, you would have missed out on those magical shots that they had but that's a nuance, kind of like what I talked about with Ford versus Ferrari last week. Let's focus in on the meat and potatoes of the movie, which is a good story that makes sense. The problem with the story of Beyond the Door 3 was you had a very solid opening act. You had a great introduction, you got a little bit of an idea of what to expect, you got American kids going to Europe, so you introduce conflict, you introduce friction, and you introduce the fact that one of the girls is slightly off. You don't know why, but you know she's off. It's a nice start to a film. And honestly, if I had pressed pause at the end of Act 1 and sat down in front of the microphone, I would be singing the praises of this film saying, hey, it was low budget but it was well shot, cleverly shot, it was a great setup, awesome film. But I didn't. I let the film play out and that's the problem. It was too heavy handed. It was too much too fast. There was no story. There was all these interesting, unique ways of killing people and all this gore and all this crazy stuff. But there was no story. There was no emotion. There was no redeeming qualities to it. And I hate to say that. I'm going to give the film a pass on the low budget stuff, it was pretty clever of them being a low budget film. The second and third act took place on a train. You can go back and use model trains to do things that you can't necessarily afford to have a real train go and do. And you do see those sometimes if you're paying close enough attention. You can see when they transition from a real train and a real set to a model train. It's a little jarring but I'm going to give them a free pass on that because it's a low budget film. But just because you're low budget just means you've got to be a little bit more creative to sell the environment sell the immersion. And just like at the beginning with a taxi. It was absolutely perfect. Again, if you weren't astutely watching it, you would never have noticed the transition from one continent to the next. So I'm gonna back up and say this: a lot of notable low budget films are horror films because of what scares us being alone, being in a foreign place, being in a place that is not as modern as our own. All these different things. If you have a very limited budget, you can shoot a very good horror film. If you have a limited budget, you cannot shoot any type of a science fiction film. If you have a limited budget, you cannot shoot a drama film because a drama film is going to rely on the actors acting. Actors acting well are going to cost you a lot of money. Therefore, you're going to be out of the low budget bracket. When I think of low budget horror films that are universally liked, I think of The Blair Witch Project and I think of the original Paranormal Activity. Both those films were shot for, I want to say Paranormal Activity was shot for about $100,000 and The Blair Witch Project was shot for about 25000 What did you need to scare? Okay, we need the perception of something evil and then we need an eerie setting that puts these two people or three people off to themselves. That's scary. I can see where the desire to make a low budget film comes from. We have documented proof that a low budget horror film does work but in this case, I think they misallocated their budget. They spent a lot on the death scenes and they spent next to nothing on the acting in the story. At the beginning of Act 2, you get in this village with all these weird people and these weird things and we're told we're going to see a passion play. Then all of a sudden, the people of this village start to burn down the hut that the college kids are in, and one of them dies because he doesn't get up. He's told there's a fire. He's screamed at several times and being told, hey, there's a fire in here, as a fire envelops him, and then he's burned to death. You're scratching your head. I don't understand what's going on here. Are you retarded? Act 1, you didn't show me that you're retarded, but 2, at the very beginning of Act 2, you're acting retarded, so I don't know what's going on here. And then they end up on this train. Two of them don't end up on the train, and then they're on this train, and all of a sudden the train, uh, it's a mess. And then all of a sudden, the dark-haired chick kisses one of the boys. Now he's got maggots in his mouth. Blood comes out of his mouth and the brunette girl rips her face off and you're like holy crap it's interesting to watch it was very well done for a low budget 1980s horror film but at the same time what the hell happened we went from she's tired she's laying on the bed the dude walks in asks her if she's alright she says I don't even remember what she says that's how insignificant it was and then they kiss even though there had been no romantic spark between them up to that point and after that point as they both died but there was no spark between them whatsoever she kisses him he's got maggots in his mouth blood starts coming out of his mouth and she rips her face off. And now we're back to the model train going down the tracks. I've talked about it before. When you make that format jump, some films get left behind. Honestly, Beyond the Door 3 probably should have been left behind. I will say that. But if this is somebody's first film and I've not done any research, but if this is a first film, it's a pretty solid first effort. And it's a solid low budget effort. If they go back and they retool a couple of things, I think it could have been a lot more entertaining a film. I respect what vinegar syndrome does, but when you have so many boutique labels that are fighting, and clawing for all of these distribution rights to all of these films. Not all these releases are going to be home runs. And I'm willing to give them a free pass because, like I said, it was far from perfect, but Amityville Dollhouse was an entertaining, quite campy, but very entertaining film. I think that's probably the case with the majority of these horror boutique labels. They're going to have some hits, but they're certainly going to have their misses as well. Our other film for today is going to be the Criterion Collection's release of True Stories. Criterion is a boutique label as well but they have a different market and they are looking for distribution rights to a different type of film. What they've done, Criterion has gone through and found a lot of European films, French new wave films, all these weird out-of-the-way films that are more art house films, more art house dramas, and they do their thing to them. So Criterion has been doing this for a long time. They grab a lot of really cool movies. They grab really the best of Asian cinematography from the 60s with all the Kung Fu stuff, and then you got all of the more philosophical, very slow burn like Red Beard and Akiru, you've got a lot of really cool films that they find, they remaster, and they release. They are honestly the gold standard in boutique releases because they won't spend the time, effort, money, etc on a film that doesn't deserve their time. They don't always pick the best films, they don't always pick technical films, but they pick films that were contemporary and were important for one reason or another in their time. It was really cool for them to come across and release David Byrne's True Stories. So David Byrne if you guys don't know is the lead singer of Talking Heads and it's a weird kind of out of the way pop rock band from the 80s and they had some really good songs but nothing I ever dived too deep into I knew who they were, I know a couple of their songs but that was about it. The film's cover features John Goodman's upside down head and John Goodman is one of those actors that really does such a good job. He's almost the forgotten character actor because of what he does and the iconic roles that he has done. Do so you Think about his role in Arachnophobia, you think about his role in Roseanne, you think about his role in the Big Lebowski, and you think about his role in Red State. And he brings something different to each of those characters. He's very charismatic and he plays those roles very well. But if you think about it, his Walter character from the Big Lebowski was a huge, huge departure from his character on Roseanne. His character on Roseanne was a huge departure again from the character that he played on Kevin Smith's Red State. If you haven't seen Red State, you need to see Red State. It is the most novel. Kevin Smith, Kevin Smith film you will ever watch. It's got Michael Parks playing a crazy Kenneth Copeland-like preacher over this small town church and calamity ensues, really great acting, some good lines. If you're looking for something and you come across Red State streaming, I don't know if it's streaming, I don't know where it's available, but if you come across it, watch it, you'll enjoy it. Back to John Goodman, what he brings to the table. And then again, you look at Criterion has spent the time to release the film. When you pick up the packaging, you flip it over, you realize you're getting the movie on Blu-ray and you're getting the soundtrack on CD. And for me, soundtracks are meaningless. They add to or subtract from a moment in the film. Very rarely is music so well nuanced that it becomes a part of the film. It's either something to add to what you're being shown on the screen, or it's going to take away from what you're being shown on the screen. And I know that's going to disappoint the show's biggest fan, Anthony. Anthony's a sound guy. Anthony loves the nuances of sound. He and I can't see eye to eye on this, but I think I'm starting to come around to his point of view. When I pick up the film initially and I see that it's got the soundtrack, that's a meaningless addition to me. I put the the film in and I start watching, I get through the film and I realize all of the music in the film was unique to that movie. The talking heads contributed to a lot of the music, but then some of the actors also contributed to singing, making the music, etc. And it was so perfect match to what you were seeing on the screen that added to the experience. So I can see very much taking that soundtrack, putting it in your car stereo, putting it in your home stereo, and listening to it and enjoying it because you've got those now visual elements to go back to and recall. Very well done. I can see how this film got a cult following, and I can see how that cult following would have ended up being very small. The premise of the film is the lead singer of The Talking Heads, David Byrne, he's directing the film, but he's also the main kind of narrator talking to you throughout the film. From the very first moment of the film, he breaks the fourth wall, and it's a green screen, if it was actually green in the 80s, I don't really know, but it's him in front of a Texas landscape, in a studio, in a car, and he's talking to you about, hey, I'm from Virgil, Texas. Let's talk about Virgil, Texas. And there is no Virgil, Texas, by the way, because I tried to Google Virgil, Texas to get an idea like, Is it East Texas? West Texas? I have no point of reference, but I think that may have been the point. He spends this whole first act of the film introducing technology and the microprocessor and silicone-based technology that's being used in Texas, and there's a corporation in Virgil, Texas that employs the vast majority of the town's people that creates these silicone motherboards and circuitry and all that kind of stuff. The first part of the film is spent on a guided tour with him as your narrator talking to the employees of this factory. What I thought was so cool about the film film, and really the legacy of that film was two things. It's called True Stories, and what he did was he basically took all of the hearsay and rumors that pop up in a small town, treated them as if they were real accusations. It was very hyperbolic from that point of view, and then had these very loud colored outfits and loud colored sets, then had the starkness of the Texas landscape, and it was such a dark transition to go from him driving down a flat Texas road, talking in his his nice southern drawl, about everything that is Virgil, Texas, and then it cuts to the factory, bright blue and bright pink, and the employees are wearing bright green and shark white, and it's visually very hyperbolic. Then you listen to the words that are coming out of the actors' mouths, and it's very hyperbolic as well. You've got a woman that is constantly lying, and no one ever calls her on her lies. She says, oh, well, I I killed JFK, or I could have been the lead singer of that band, but, you know, my management staff said that that was not the best way for me to go. All these various little lies along the way, and when I say little, I'm mean in no way shape or form little like then you have the hyperbolic example of the woman who oh she never gets out of bed and she made all her money and now she doesn't even get up out of bed and she's got this robot and this maid she's got a machine that will literally spoon feed her and she's got a remote and she watches tv all day it's very quirky and it's very out of the way it's very hyperbolic but at its core it is a satire of our current state of affairs commercialism with ticky tacky houses being built everywhere with prefab this and prefab that at the same time you get that nice little southern charm of everybody knows everyone's business and wants to be involved in that business to a fault. You take those hyperbolic conclusions that people have about your next door neighbor and you know David Byrne in writing of the film treats those as if they were real. The pacing of the film, the quirkiness of the film, the music of the film was very fascinating. When I say the music, everything was very rhythmic and was timed out very perfectly. So even if they had a fashion show and the woman was introducing the various costumes and various outfits and the outfits just kept getting more and more ridiculous and her voice became more sing-songy and eventually she just broke out into song. This woman comes out with a seven foot thing on top of her head and it ends up being so top heavy that she falls over and the song ends and it goes on to the next thing. That's what I mean. It's so weird. It's so quirky. It's so hyperbolic but yet it's so entertaining at the exact same time. After watching that movie I have so much appreciation for the music that was in it but I also want to go back and listen to more talk talking heads stuff because I feel like maybe I was being slightly unfair to the talking heads themselves because obviously there's a lot of musical talent there and maybe it was just his way of taking normal mundane day-to-day things and then add music add rhythm add beat all these things to it that then made that experience that much better I don't really know but it was very well done and it's something that's the legacy of that film is the music and such my one complaint I've mentioned it several times so you have this narrator character who is not so much a traditional narrator he is in Involved in the scenes, he's involved in all the stuff. But whenever he's walking from one place to the next, or he's driving, he will use that opportunity to turn and face the camera and talk and tell you what to expect, what he expects, all these different things. Somewhere between the transition from Act Two to Act Three, it's very weird. The film kind of loses itself a little bit, loses its quirkiness, loses that identity, loses everything. And I'm still trying to kind of reel back from that. The main character, well, outside of the narrator, the main character was John Goodman's character, Louis Fine. And if I ever get an online profile. I will include this line in here even though it's not factual. It's just an awesome line. He gets a TV commercial made of himself and, and his, his number 844 wife because that's all he's looking for is a wife. But he describes himself as, and I love this, six foot, three inches tall and consistently shaped like a panda bear. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but that's just a bitchin' way for someone to describe themselves. You're getting an idea of the quirkiness, of the oddness, of the, of the weirdness, the, the hyperbolic nature of the characters of the film itself. We follow him in his quest for love, his quest for marriage. We follow him, And it gets kind of off track a little bit, and we lose the heart of the movie, we lose the narrator, we lose the pacing, we lose the quirkiness, because Lewis Fine, John Goodman's character, has a, a sit-down with this woman, and he tells her about the song that he's going to sing at the show the next night, and he starts to sing the song, and it's not all together, he doesn't have all the words. The woman says to him, well, that's a very sad song, and he's like, well, crap, I, I never thought about that song being sad until you said it now. So it kind of throws him for a loop, and instead of the film kind of busting out of that, letting that kind of play out, and then picking back up where the film had been going prior to that you kind of follow his path of him trying anything last ditch effort by the character to try to find love and he goes and he finds a spiritual doctor who gives him all these instructions he goes and finds his co-worker who is in a Latin band he's seeking out all this advice and then finally thankfully the parade jumps in you see the parade kind of snaps you out of that really almost a non sequitur that was that 10 or 15 minute sequence where you're following Lewis Fine's character after he realized that he he was sad and that he wanted happiness his desperation to get to that point but once you get past that and the parade starts and you know you've got that show that night it picks right back up with the quirkiness picks right back up with the oddities and the bright colors and plays itself out and then it's got it's own little quirky ending one thing that makes a film a little bit more human and a little bit more realistic is to slow the pacing down because in most movies you cut to the action and then you cut from the action there is no inaction even in a drama film words set up settings, all these kind of things are the action, and you want to cut from action to action. But what David Byrne does in this film humanizes the film and makes it seem more realistic, and you almost forget you're watching actors act. He doesn't cut from action to action. It starts out with inaction, builds to action, descends back into inaction, and then cuts to another inaction. Then it builds to action, and then it cuts back to inaction. It was a lot more realistic an approach, and I loved it. One example that I'll give you of this, if I'm not making myself too clear, was it shows the car driving down the road, and it's literally just showing him driving down the road. He's not fiddling with anything. He's not playing with anything. He's just kind of turning the wheel normally from side to side like you would to kind of maintain your lane. And then he looks at the camera. He makes a comment, says something, advances the story, and then it cuts back to him just regularly driving. Then it'll cut to, if he had made reference to, let's say, Lewis Fine, John Goodman's character, he cuts to Lewis Fine at the factory doing his job. And then he looks up, makes a comment to the camera, and then goes right back to doing his job. And it was a lot more human approach. It allowed you to kind of forget you were watching a movie. So the film opens up with a little gr- girl dancing down a dirt road and it shows her off into the distance and as the credits roll you see her get closer so the film ends in very much the same way so you got this up close of this little girl dancing on the road it's very real she's not an actor she's not particularly good at dancing it's just a normal little girl just wandering down the road and pans up and zooms out at the exact same time so you get a reverse of the way it opened up and it was so human and it felt so real and it made you feel like you were in small town texas where there's not a whole lot going on where the pacing is a little bit different you know everyone talks about especially back in the day you go to a big city and you feel that energy you feel that intensity you feel that pacing but yet you go to a small town and you see the tumbleweeds come across Main Street type of thing and I think that was the point he was trying to highlight and it was highlighted well it was a phenomenal film and it was funny because again like I said in the beginning of the show I don't think I could have found two films lost in the mix lost from one format to the next picked up by a boutique label remastered and released and really and truly picked two films that were completely opposite in content and quality of content ended up being Pretty much in my opinion a home run of an episode for me because I get to talk about a bad film and a good film It's fascinating and it highlights a potential problem with boutique labels as I leave this episode I'm saying this as advice more for myself and more for John Let's not just be so sold on filling in gaps in our collections and having a pretty collection to look at Let's focus in on a collection that has quality films that has lost films that have films that deserve to be watched Reviewed talked about I highlighted the opposite ends of those spectrums with Beyond on the Door 3 and with True Stories. I'm glad I got to sit down and watch both movies. I said it in season one, sometimes when you watch a bad movie, it does more to stimulate you mentally thinking about films because you have so many opportunities to think about and fill in the gaps and think about the things that were wrong about a film versus watching a good film. Sometimes when you watch a good film, you get to the end of it and there's nothing to say. There's nothing to talk about because it ironed out and it fleshed out all the points it needed to make. I feel like I'm kind of glossing over a lot of Beyond the Door 3, but in reality there was a lot to be glossed over, I feel like I'm glossing over a lot of True Stories, but the reality is True Stories was such a good movie, there's not a whole lot I can add outside of a simple summary of what actually occurred on the screen, and with Beyond the Door 3, I talked about its redeeming qualities, I talked about how it could have been improved, but there's really not a whole lot beyond that, beyond that Door 3, that I could discuss, I think that's probably as good a place as any to end the show, I've talked to John and apparently he has no obligations with his wife, his kids, anybody else, so I'm hoping, even if I have to take the microphone and the setup to his house, I feel like next episode i'm hoping that we can actually get john back in the studio because he and i have a list of about five to ten films that we would like to watch together and record an episode of the podcast i don't want to spoil those films so i'm trying to pick films that he either wouldn't watch like ford versus ferrari or films that really aren't worthy of our collective time like beyond the door three hopefully next time it'll be john and jay talking movies and not just jay making excuses for john not talking about movies this has been present jay signing off we'll talk to you later that was real that's all, folks. This has been John and Jay talk movies. God, no! Oh, God, no! Please! I'm not so sure what to believe. All we get is what you people tell us. God, that's enough. That is enough. Come out! I'm burning. My lungs are burning. Come out! Come out!